you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to be spending our time there this morning. Uh, again, if you're uh, new with us, we've been in this series through the book of Exodus for some time. And we'll, we'll continue that today. We'll, we'll dive in in just a moment. Before that, just kind of as a, a reminder and an introduction of sorts, it's so important anytime we approach the scriptures uh, to remember what are the right types of questions to be asking when we dive into the Bible and God's word. Oftentimes it can be tempting to go, what does this passage mean for me? Or what is God trying to say to me through these words? And there's no doubt that God does speak to us personally and uniquely, but that's not how the scriptures function. It was written by a specific person, God ordained at a specific time to a specific people in a specific place. And in order to understand the proper context and what God wants us to gain from this part of the scriptures, we have to consider those things. And there was this quote in uh, the Bible Expositors or Expositors Bible Commentary that I think really sets the tone for what we're going to be doing this morning. The, the quote said this, a closer look shows that the stories were not written for providing a report of Israel's stay in the desert, but are intended for instruction for, Isra for the Israel of the future. The, the words that we just read in Deuteronomy first uh, appear a variation of them in Exodus because God has just redeemed and saved his people out of slavery and abuse and oppression in Egypt. He's preparing them to be sent into the promised land so that they can live the life that he designed for them as a community, that they would stand out amongst the rest of the world and the world would look in and see that his way and his love is good. And a part of that instruction is what we prayed over these children as we walk, as we talk, as we journey to follow him in all of life. Before that happened, though, we pick up here in Exodus 15, which wasn't written just as a mere historical account, but it was written so that future generations could know this God, could know the story and his love and his faithfulness, could grow and learn what it means and how to act as God's people. This nation. Let's go ahead and read out of uh, Exodus 14, verse 31. It says this. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord Yahweh used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So quick recap, if you haven't been with us, for 400 years, God's people, this nation referred to as Israel, they were slaves. They were a mighty people, but they were burdened and oppressed and abused by Pharaoh, by Egypt, the powerhouse of the world economy at that time. And they cried out and God heard their cries. And so he raised up a leader named Moses in miraculous ways and saved Moses' life multiple times. And then he performs all kinds of miracles to provide salvation for them out of Egypt. Salvation's exactly what they received. Salvation's a word we throw around a lot. It's a really important word in Christian circles for us as the church as we follow Jesus. But I think we oftentimes almost complicate and maybe even misunderstand what it is that salvation is. There's two key parts to salvation. There's what salvation is from, and then there's what salvation is for. In this case, through the Passover, the blood of the lamb, Israel was saved. They received salvation from Egypt, from death and sickness and slavery and oppression and abuse. They received salvation from something, 
But that's half of the story. They also received salvation for something. It's, again, what we just prayed over these children, for life. Life the way Jesus has designed for us to have it. Life to the full. Embracing becoming human the way he designed us to be. Being incredible neighbors and employees and employers. Being excellent at whatever we do. Loving, practicing generosity and repentance. Seeking out justice. Worshiping our God. Enjoying just the beauty and good of his creation. That's what his people were saved from, but then for. I hope that nobody here would ever take a bullet for a boulder. That'd be really stupid. You wouldn't jump in front of a bullet to save a boulder. Why? Well, because the boulder does not have any life. It would be a pointless sacrifice. Now, many of you probably would not hesitate to take a bullet for a loved one. Again, why? Because they have life. You would not be making that sacrifice just to save them from something, the bullet. You'd be making the sacrifice to save them for something. But there's a a really massive issue in the church, sometimes our church included. I'm speaking of the church as a whole, us as Christians. We often only reflect on what we have been saved from. Hell, sin, death, disease, sickness, which is all real. And we should be incredibly grateful and worship the fact that our Jesus, the Lamb, sacrificed his own body and blood for us to be saved from sin and Satan and death and disease and sickness. But I'll be so bold as to say, we waste the sacrifice of Jesus if all we do is reflect on what he saved us from and we don't embrace what he has saved us for. I'll never forget, I don't even know how many years ago, four to five years ago, we were inside of the building on Easter, and I was teaching, and it was a fine sermon, whatever, I don't know, good, bad, whatever it was, I don't remember. What I do remember is this uh, young woman came up to me after, and her eyes, I don't think they were teary, but they were serious, and there was kind of emotion built into them, and she walked up to me and said, I I have a, a word for you, and she said, Jesus says, I did not just die for you. I rose for you. And it's so simple, yet so profound. And I will never forget that moment. We were not just saved from the bat. We were saved for life. So often our theology as Christians starts in Genesis 3 with sin and the fall and we think about salvation, but our theology has to start with Genesis 1 and 2 when again and again and again God declared that the world was made and it was made good. He's a perfect good designer and so he made us for life. This world doesn't just burn away one day. Jesus comes down to restore it because it was good. He didn't make a mistake. He's restoring this world to his intent. He's restoring us as individuals and families and communities to what his good and perfect design is. So we too, by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus, have been saved from something, but we cannot waste the sacrifice and love of Jesus and stop there. We can't be content with that because he's not content with that. We have to uh, reflect on what he has saved us for. And that's what this passage uh, is about this morning. In chapter 15, after they recognize how faithful Yahweh God is, after they place their faith in Moses, God's chosen leader, 
the very first worship song recorded in the scriptures occurs uh, in verses 1 through 21 of Exodus chapter 15. I'm, I'm not going to read it, but it's this beautiful moment, really. This first moment, it's in essence the first church gathering. It would have been outside like this, and they would have proclaimed uh, God's word that they had at that point. They would have proclaimed the scriptures, and they would have sang in worship and gratitude for what they had been saved from and what was next, what they would or what they had been saved for. Have you ever experienced maybe a church gathering, a moment, a concert, something where the spirit was present and you go, God is so good. Maybe you accepted Jesus uh, on some night or, or some event, or maybe there was healing or unity or forgiveness or whatever it was. I remember one time at a family camp. I'd never seen anything like it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. I was a kid. And every single one of the, the people in this room at Lost Canaan and Williams just started weeping. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. And the spirit moved. And people were asking for forgiveness and community. And fathers were stepping up to help father children that weren't even their own. That were It was mind-blowing. Have you ever had one of those moments where the spirit moves and God is working? That's what Israel was having. And then listen to, to what happened next. After this incredible worship gathering and service, then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea where they just received salvation from Egypt. And they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They had this incredible spiritual experience and moment. They'd never been closer to one another or to this God that just gave them salvation. And then guess what happened? Three days later, the everyday stuff of life hit them like a ton of bricks. They wandered in the desert, alone, hopeless, without water. Just, just soak this in for one second, okay? I see as I look out right now, a lot of you are holding water. And probably every one of you that is not holding water is probably thinking about water, especially the ones of you that are in this section right here. Now think about not just 24 hours or 48 hours, but three full days without water. I don't care how cool, how moving the spiritual experience was in that first church gathering three days prior, but they'd lost faith at this moment. The spiritual didn't matter because the physical was taking the prominent place in their minds because they were literally going to die. And so guess what question they asked? Did you save us, give us salvation from Egypt, just so that we would die in the desert. In other words, were we not saved for something? Were we only saved from something? This is a, a good lesson for us as the church. This might sound harsh, but if all you have is this, here or anywhere else in a place we might call the church, meaning you come for a spiritual experience, this religious vending machine kind of thing, you show up on Sunday, you get some spiritual goodness, and then you leave. If that is all you have, you have no hope. Genuinely, I'm saying that actually compassionately because Jesus' design for us is one another. It was not just Jesus on a cross. That is immense and we'll never fathom his sacrifice and love. We can't take that all in. It's not just Jesus rising, but he rose so that we could be together as one body, as one family, following Jesus and the everyday stuff of life. The way that he provides for us, in addition to giving his spirit, is that he gives us one another to follow and the everyday stuff of life. Israel had to learn that. We also need to learn that. A church gathering alone is not enough. We continue to read, Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. 
They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. Side note, I kind of picture like a, a family road trip with kids and they ask, are we there yet? Seven billion times. And there's a lot of restroom breaks and you're like, can we just get there? And then they're thirsty and you're like, don't drink because then you're gonna pee and it's just terrible. Three days of this with millions of people. Now think about mom and dad in that situation. You start to fight. You start to get angry at anybody and everybody just because you're dying to get out of the car in the heat. I remember one time our daughter threw up just outside of Yuma. It was like 122 degrees in the car seat. Have you ever cleaned up throw up out of the crevices of a car seat with water bottles? It's terrible. They're having this type of experience here. They probably don't like anybody, let alone Moses. They're blaming Moses and Moses is going, God, what are you doing? The people grumbled to Moses here in verse 24. God despises grumbling. God hates people that grumble. God can't stand to hear our complaining and our arguing and our bickering and our questions and our confusion. It just annoys him. At some point, he just plugs his God-like ears so that he doesn't have to hear all of our grumbling. He no longer hears our prayers. He no longer listens. He no longer loves us. He gets annoyed with you. Matter of fact, he might strike you down with lightning or curse you or do some other bad thing. Have you ever felt that way about God? Have you ever felt as if you, if you don't do the right thing or you do the wrong thing or, or you pray in the wrong way or you share something he doesn't have time for you to share or you're too emotional or you don't know how to handle a situation? He's just kind of annoyed and doesn't have time. Maybe even as somebody throwing a, a scripture verse at you, be joyful always. Rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances. God expects us to just shut up and move on and be faithful. I want to be incredibly clear. That is a myth and an unbelievably damaging one. Sometimes the best thing that we can do in our relationship to the Father is grumble. Now there's a time and place which means there's a time and place it is not appropriate. But grumbling to God can be good. He invites us to vulnerably and honestly cast our cares upon him. Notice in this passage what happens. They grumble. So my, Moses grumbles. He cries out to the Lord and Yahweh showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. Notice God did not strike them down with lightning. God did not go, you're the worst, shut up, keep going, just listen, don't talk, don't speak. He said, thank you. I'm glad we had this conversation. Now I can help. I'm here. I want to help. Now, assumptions can be unbelievably dangerous in any and every single relationship. A few weeks ago, uh, my family and I went to California and we bought these uh, two-day passes to Legoland. We got a special price on. It was great. We were going to be there with uh, family and friends. And so uh, we had a great time for the, the most part the first day. Some people got lost. They were looking on their phone at the map and couldn't figure out where to go. It was good and hot. And by the end of the day, I had a realization. Legoland is a one-day kind of place. It's great for one day. The two-day pass, not worth it. So I text these close family friends, and I'm like, hey, great day. Thanks so much uh, for the time. We're great for anything. Whatever you want to do tomorrow, we can go back to Legoland. Or 
We can just skip it and go to the beach and do whatever else. Totally up to you. Whatever you want's great. I did my part, right? I couldn't say, let's not go to Legoland just in case they wanted to, but I made it very clear. We don't have to, so now you can respond because you're also adults. You know, Legoland's a one-a-day one kind of place. He responds and goes, nope, good to go. Let's go back to Legoland. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. We go to Legoland, they get lost more, it's fine. The kids loved it, but as adults, by the end, we're a little tired. The next day, we're at the beach, and finally I'm like, Legoland's a one-day kind of place, do you agree? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, I didn't even want to go back. And they're like, we didn't want to go back. We thought you wanted to go back. And I'm like, no, I thought you wanted to. That's why I sent the text. You had one job, and you blew it. We both assumed we wanted to be back, but we didn't. Over, over the years, I've had the pleasure, for the most part, of having uh, the, the opportunity to work with a bunch of different people and sometimes have people work for me. And without fail, in any relationship, you know this if you're human, eventually there's conflict. Eventually there's miscommunication, a lack of clarity, something challenging will happen. I often say to people, you don't know if you're going to be like the quality of a friendship until the first time you don't like them. Until you hit that point, the relationship means nothing because it will happen. And so inevitably, at some point, we'll have a conversation. And typically, there's an easy fix. And I'll think to myself, why don't you just share this? And then I'll share, if you would have just said this three months ago, I, I could have helped, but I didn't know, and I can't help with what I don't know. They made the assumption I might be angry or I didn't have time to deal with it or whatnot. Or I make the assumption that everything's good, that I provided clarity, that they have what they need. Either way, once again, assumptions are dangerous. Now, with God, he doesn't need information like I need information. He knows everything. But there's something significant and special when we take the humility to engage with God in this way. The process of us praying and lament, the process of us grumbling when it is appropriate, is a relational move that's really important. The Israelites grumbled a lot, a little too much. There was times it wasn't appropriate. Some of you might grumble too much. Some of you might not grumble enough. But don't assume that God's angry. Don't assume that God doesn't want to hear. In fact, assume the opposite. Assume that his arms are always open. 100%, he's always forgiving. He's always loving. He always has your best interest in mind. Sometimes, oftentimes, grumbling is actually good because he's God and we're not. And there's this relational bridge that happens. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. In the midst of the everyday stuff of life, after the church service they had in the desert with the first worship song, what did they encounter? Bitterness. Something bitter, something harsh. Not the way it's supposed to be. Water shouldn't be bitter. It should be drinkable, not undrinkable. Each and every one of us will face both broken and beautiful moments in life. Each and every one of us will taste both sweet and bitter portions of this life because sin's a reality. Life is hard. Things are broken. What we see that's so beautiful in this passage, though, is even when, not if, but when, we all face bitterness in our own way, in the everyday stuff of life, Jesus turns bitter to sweet. Now we have to understand this. It will be in his timing and in his way. 
His thoughts and his ways are not our thoughts and our ways. They're above our thoughts and our ways. But when we experience the bitter this life brings, we can fully trust Jesus in that moment. He's trustworthy always, no matter the moment, which means in bitter moments, he's trustworthy. So I want to close with a few thoughts on this. A few things to remember when we're facing something bitter in life. If something in life is bitter, go to Jesus and trust that he can and will make it sweet. In his own way and in his own time, we can trust he'll be faithful. On the other hand, if something in life, the season you're in is sweet, it's good, it's right, it's whole, give thanks because all good things are sourced from Jesus. He's the only one that brings good. And so practice gratitude. And speaking of of families, every single one of you has some level of influence. It is so critical that we both practice gratitude, being thankful to Jesus for what is good, and healthy, I'm going to call it grumbling, healthy grieving, healthy lament when it's not, because he's the only one that can heal and provide. There's three things that, three ways, if you will, that God helps in this moment when they're facing something bitter. They have no water to drink. The the first thing is this. God uses what is already around them. If in life you're facing something bitter, look around. Notice the tree that was there was already there. God didn't snap his fingers. There wasn't a magic cloud in this moment that dropped the tree and then the water was sweet. There was already a tree there. In our lives, when we're facing something bitter, most likely, the most likely scenario is that God will use someone or something that is already in your life to provide. This goes back to one of the the first points I made. If this is all you have sitting in a seat, listening to somebody teach and singing songs, you don't have any hope. This is why we need to be integrated into community. This is why we make meals so important and we'll have a barbecue later. This is why praying together, confessing together, repenting together, Sabbathing together, vacationing together, doing all of life together is so important because he's probably going to use someone or something that's already in your life to provide for you. The, the second thing is that Jesus provides us unique wisdom and knowledge that maybe we didn't have before. As I studied on what exactly was happening with this tree in the water, it's thought that it was actually less miraculous and more just the natural world that God created, almost like we had add a lemon to water that's bitter to make the flavor acceptable. This tree had properties in it that would soak up the bitter to make the water drinkable. But they didn't know that. God's the designer of this life and this earth, and he made it brilliantly. And he guides us on how to be human and how to utilize and steward the resources he has in front of us in the everyday stuff of life. This wasn't just the spiritual. One of the most significant mistakes we can make as followers of Jesus is to think he only cares about the spiritual. Yes, he made our spirits, but he made the world and our bodies and all of life third thing that we can learn from this is that he does work miraculously. We'll see at the end that uh, a limited number of trees and water source feeds and provides water for this whole massive family. Water that was undrinkable. He uses what's there, what was natural in the world, and then he miraculously multiplies it to provide for his people. These are some of the ways that I think we can look at the events, the scenarios, the things going on in our lives to see how God might be working. Verse 25 through 27. So Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, 
When he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. Yahweh made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey Yahweh your God, do what is right in his eyes, pay attention to his commands and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh who heals you. Then he came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the waters. When I was about 20, I was working in the office, and I think I shared this at one point, and I just got, I got dizzy one day. Like two hours later, it wasn't just bothering me. I had to lay down because something was weird. I laid down just on the floor in my office for like 30 minutes. Then I'm like, I got to go home. I don't know what is happening. I went home. I fell asleep at like 4 p.m., and then I didn't wake up until the next morning. And when I woke up, my world was literally spinning. Like not a little bit, but like you're at the fair or some theme park and you're on, not like a roller coaster, but one of those things that spins you in any and every direction. I opened my eyes and I quickly shut. I'm like, what is happening? And then I tried to walk and it was like, if you play that game where you put your head on the bat and spin 20 times and it wouldn't go away. That goes away in about five minutes. It wouldn't go away. I couldn't walk. Like physically, if I wanted to, I had to hold things, close my eyes. One day I was going to go to the doctor. And so my lovely father that I talked about was going to pick me up. And he's like, I'm here. And I got that on the phone. So I started walking. And it took me literally like three minutes to get from the couch to the door, like 20 feet. And I opened the door and it's sunny and I, I could barely function. So I'm walking like this slow. And he's like making jokes from the truck. Like, hey, you need help? I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, dad. He's like, can you pick it up? A little quicker. And finally, he realized halfway down, he's like, oh, this is real. I'm like, yes. And he comes and helps me. Like a month later, I didn't drive, could hardly walk. It was the most terrifying experience in my life. Not painful, but terrifying. Uh, I go to a specialist in Phoenix, and what he told me is permanent uh, damage was done in my inner ear uh, from this virus, and it couldn't be fixed. So in essence, what happened was I had 20-something years of my brain and my inner ear communicating on how to balance, how to walk, how to catch a ball, hand-eye coordination, everything. And you learn that skill over time, and you develop it and get better and better. And for me, overnight, it was gone. So the dizziness happened slowly, but by the time I woke up, the damage was done, and I was kind of like a newborn of sorts in a 20-year-old's body. It's real awkward. I couldn't walk. I couldn't figure anything out. And they said, there's nothing you can do. The doctor said, you just have to start over. Your inner ear, your brain have to learn how to communicate all over again with totally new signals. Six months to a year later, I was walking fine. I could jog, run, do everything. If I tried to catch a ball, it was like moving. I'd go play sports and I'd be like, really? I promise. I'm not terrible. I just have this vertigo thing. I can't see. They're like, yeah, we believe that. That's what happened for Israel here, though. 400 years of their fathers and their fathers and their fathers getting used to Egypt and Pharaoh and their culture declaring what was good. Every culture declares what is good. The scriptures start with God saying, he made and it was good. He made and saw and declared it was good. He made and saw and declared it was good. While they were slaves, abused, oppressed in Egypt, their kings and their gods said, it is good for you to do this. It is not good for you to do that. They defined what was right and whole. And the Israelite family had no choice but to listen. And it had been so long, multiple generations, that they didn't know what life should be like. They didn't know what being human the way they were made to be looked like. And so God gave them a statute and an ordinance. It means instruction. This was not this filthy, hey, if you don't do exactly what I say, I'm going to punish you. This is, you have no clue what's good. 
It's grabbing a toddler by the hand and going, let me show you. Let me pick you up. Let me care for you. And little by little, you'll get it back. This is how a good, loving God provides for us. John 10.10 says this, a thief comes, Jesus' words, only to kill and destroy. But I've come so that they, we, can have life and life to the full, or life and life abundantly, or life the way he designed for it to be. And I'll close with this. May we not be a church, may we not be a people who only reflect on and sing about and think about and live like Jesus provided us salvation from something. That matters. But he provided salvation for us to go live, for us to love our neighbors, for us to take the job of parenting seriously, for us to be great employees and employers, for us to be great family members, for us to be a church that loves each other. Romans says, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and mourn with those who are mourning. He gave up his life so that we could walk next to each, to each other and those that are struggling in their lives. May we be a people that don't waste that sacrifice of Jesus, but embrace it fully. As always, we're gonna uh, close by responding and worship by taking communion. And today, as you uh, come forward and grab the elements for communion here or in the station uh, by the sound booth, reflect on Jesus' body and the bread, his blood and the cup. Give thanks that he saved you from sickness and Satan and death and hell. But don't stop there. Give thanks and ask him to lead you to be who he's called you uniquely and specifically to be for life now. We've been blessed with an incredible gift of Jesus. Let's embrace that together now by taking communion and knowing we're united with Christ. Feel free at any point now to come forward and worship by taking communion. Hey, thanks so much for joining us for our six weeks of summer as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. Glad that you were able to tune in. Um, if you haven't yet, jump over to restorationaz.org. We'd love to get connected with you, get to know a little bit about you. You can also um, see who we are, what we're about, and um, yeah, begin the journey. And um, if you haven't gotten plugged into a local congregation yet, we just uh, that's something that we really, really value. Um, and restoration definitely does not need to be the place, but um, for you to get plugged in somewhere we feel like is really, really important. So um, be prayerful and mindful about that and consider that. And um, yeah, we say this every week, but we mean it. Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.